Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Now, somewhat sadly, to the final of our Open House series of these past five weeks on a treasury of conversion stories, 60 stories spanning 2,000 years of all sorts of fascinating people coming to Christian faith. John Mulder has compiled them, and so for the final time this series, John, welcome back to Open House. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be with you. It's been a wonderful series of conversations, John. Before we begin our final journey tonight, John, that covers so many centuries, here's a question about conversion and applies to, I think, all of the 60 people in your book. It is not just enough for them to find this faith and live it out in their own life and world. They feel, I think, compelled to do two things, it seems. There's a very common thread to so many in the Christian faith. They first want to share their faith with others to draw them into the faith. They also embark on a range of good works that actually make the world a better place. Why that compulsion, John? I think it's inherent in the Christian faith itself and the teaching of Jesus. By your fruits, you shall know them. If it's a genuine conversion and not simply a delusion of somebody's psyche, then they're going to act differently. They're going to lead a life that shows that something is different, and that uh, usually takes the form of, like Paul, going on the road and telling other people about what happened. But it also has profound ethical consequences. Each of the people in the book, and I confess I chose them in this way, each of the people in the book truly demonstrate the difference that Christ makes in their lives and what a turning to God really means in concrete terms. Unless there is some evidence, some dramatic change in a person's life, then we're not talking about a real conversion. And as I indicated in another week, I think the experience of change for individuals is probably the most frightening experience they can contemplate to be right up against the question, is God asking me to be different? Mm. That is huge, and it's terrifying, and the turn can only be made with the help of a gracious God, a loving God, who's going to be kind and not judge. Terrifying yet so delightful, and as we say, so much better for the world in so many ways. So let's begin our final journey tonight, John, through four of the people in your book. And then, as I said, I want to find out your favorite out of all the 60. First to a most significant figure in the history of the Protestant Church, John Calvin. Take us through his story, John. Calvin, in contrast to Luther, is kind of a Renaissance man in his early adulthood. He knows the Latin literature, he knows the Greek classics, he's a man well-versed in the literature of his time. And then he has what he says is a sudden conversion. We really don't know a great deal about it, because as Calvin says, I am by nature timid, mild, and cowardly. It's not exactly the Calvin that is usually remembered by the people, the Calvin who uh, was stern and judgmental and all the rest. Behind all that was a man who, of all the characters in the Bible, he identified with David. Why? Because David had doubts. 
David was uncertain about his faith. David was assailed by his critics and his enemies. He identifies with David in his weakness, not in David's strength. And I think that's a fascinating insight into a man who, for all the world, seems to be a man of certitude, of absolute assurance about the truth and how to defend the Christian church. Calvin, in his description of his conversion, it's very interesting that he focuses on the presence of God. The role of Christ in the story is not very prominent. It's an emphasis upon the presence of God and the vocation that flows from confronting God. After Calvin has his experience of God, his life is transformed. Now he is the reformer, the person who will help Geneva and lead in the reformation of the church. It's a fascinating interior story of a a man whose uh, life is known most by his exterior characteristics and achievements, but not this inner turmoil and doubt and uncertainty. What a picture. Now to Albert Schweitzer, John, a hugely important figure for Africa, who in his early days was pursuing a musical career. Well, and a medical career, and (laughs) practically anything he wanted to do. I mean, Schweitzer could have been one of the greatest interpreters of Bach in the 20th century. He wrote a famous work in that regard. He was and still is a major theologian of the early 20th century, and his work is a kind of landmark in the study of Christology. And yet he puts all of this aside, the musical career, the theological career, all of that is put aside, and he decides to become a doctor. In one of his wonderful lines, he says, I wanted to be a doctor that I might be able to work without having to talk. What a wonderful way of describing ministry. I wanted to do something rather than talk about it. And He developed this wonderful clinic in Africa, and it became a kind of symbol of how Western science might benefit the impoverished people of Africa who were suffering from disease that could be cured. It got him the Nobel Prize, and all the way along he was living his faith rather than simply talking about it. And I think that he stands as probably the 20th century's greatest example of ethical Christianity lived out in actions rather than simply proclaimed in words. It's a great beacon of life. John, each week we've also ensured that we've covered a significant story of a woman in Christian faith. Tonight you've got Evelyn Underhill. Tell us about her story, John. She is a woman or a figure who was very, very widely known through the first half or even three quarters of the 20th century, but who is not widely known today, and that's part of the reason why I included her in the book. She is an English woman converted to Catholicism, but then rejected Catholicism after the Vatican issued its decree on modernism. 
and she couldn't live with those strictures on her faith, so she became a member of the Church of England. She was influenced deeply by the Austrian Baron Friedrich von Hugel in her letters to him, described an experience that led to the kind of mystical strain that she brought out of Christianity and gave to the Christian church. She wrote, One day when I was praying, quite suddenly a voice seemed to speak to me. It said only one short thing, first in Latin and then in English. I thought that was wonderful. She heard first in Latin and then in English. She got it. She said, I simply cannot believe that it was not something deeper, more real, not me at all. The effect was terrific, sort of nailed me to the floor for half an hour, which went as a flash. I definitely felt called out and settled once and for all that any falling back or leaving off after that would be an unpardonable treason. And this was the heart of her experience, this deep and profound presence of God in her life that nailed her to the floor for about a half an hour. And out of that experience, she drew on the mystical strains within Christianity to help people understand in a very scientific and rationalistic world how the life of the Spirit could be nurtured and found in everyone. How did she do that, John, and what difference did she make to the world? She became a widely published author and traveled widely, both in Great Britain and in the English-speaking world. She was a major figure who helped thousands of people recognize that Christianity wasn't so much a matter of creeds as it was a matter of experiencing God through prayer and through meditation. That side of Christian life was not well developed in the first part of the 20th century, and she became a major person who turned the church's attention to the inner life as well as the external life of thought and belief and confession. So that's Evelyn Underhill. Finally, John, and it's very fitting to finish with this man, such a favorite of so many, whether they have Christian faith or not, a very highly significant Christian author, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is probably better known today than he was during his lifetime. (laughs) He is extraordinary. There is even a C.S. Lewis company to deal with all of the various requests for use of his work. He was, quite apart from his Christian writings, he's a major figure in English literature or English literary criticism, especially writings about the 16th and 17th century. Then he was an author who wrote children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia, that have now been brought to the stage, been on television, film. The Chronicles have been rendered in so many different ways. And he was a writer of science fiction. His books there, once again, are considered a kind of landmark in the development of the genre of science fiction. But it's his writings about Christianity that I think have also been extremely powerful. And for Lewis, coming to Christianity was not a very dramatic affair. 
he talks about riding to the shore in a car, and when he left, he was a theist. He believed in God, but by the time he got to the seashore, he had become a Christian. And it was his unabashed and unapologetic description of Christian faith as something people could believe in without sacrificing their intellect that really made Lewis, I think, the most significant theologian of the 20th century. But again, he comes to it in a very simple, rather boring, actually, (laughs) series of steps where he finally says, I submit, I am a Christian. And that ride to the seashore, I think, has been mimicked by many, many other people who have their doubts, but ultimately... God breaks through, and they find themselves in a new life with God. And from all that he's written, John, how would you encapsulate that gulf of a difference between believing in God and embracing Christian faith? I think for Lewis, it was primarily a matter of the Incarnation. It was one thing to have ideas and beliefs about God. It was something else again to encounter God in the reality of Christ becoming a human being. The drama of God becoming human, I think, was the linchpin that finally moved him from theism to Christianity. Yeah. So finally, John, of all the 60 stories you've laid out in this very enjoyable and important book, I want to press you on a hard choice your favorite among them all. You got one. Oh my. <laughs> well, I have a I have a special fondness for Bill W, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous because his experience of the white light was so similar to the experience I had. But the one who really captured my imagination was Pandita Ramabai. She was an Indian woman born into poverty. Her father was a well-educated Hindu who contravened all of Hindu practice by educating his wife and his daughter, Pandita Ramabai. He died very early in her life, and she and her siblings began to travel around begging for their food, and she became an expert in Hindu literature. By the time she was 12, she had memorized 18,000 Sanskrit verses and their wisdom, and she so astounded the Hindu scholars that they named her Pandita, or the expert Ramabai. But she encountered enormous prejudice against women and sexism in the Hindu faith, And that drove her steadily to Christianity. She was converted in a series of experiences that led her to a deeper understanding of the equality of men and women before God. The admonition in Galatians, neither slave nor free, male or female, that kind of vision meant a great deal to her. After studying in England, she returned to India and began what is absolutely a mind-boggling ministry and career. 
She founded a center for child brides and impoverished women and blind men and women and children. And that uh, ministry called the Mukti Mission exists to the present day. She had to do so against intense pressure and discrimination against her ministry and against her own status as both a woman and a Christian. And then during the last years of her life, she decided to translate the Bible. So she taught herself Greek and Hebrew and translated the entire Bible. The only woman who has ever translated the entire Bible by herself. She worked despite the fact that her health was failing, and when she was close to the end, she prayed to God for ten more days to finish her translation of the Bible. Ten days later, she completed her proofreading, and she died in her sleep that night. It's a story of an enormously courageous woman who had a profound experience of God's grace in her life and led her to protesting against the dehumanizing treatment of women in India. One scholar categorically concludes, Pandita Ramabai was the greatest woman produced by modern India and one of the greatest Indians in all of history. She's not well known to the Western world, but I hope her story in this book will be an inspiration to both men and women to recognize their equality before God. And encapsulates those twin elements of Christian faith that we began with, making that faith known and making the world a better place. John Mulder, I've thoroughly enjoyed these last five weeks now conversations about this treasury of conversion stories. The book is Finding God, and we'll put the details up on our Open House Community Facebook page. John, thank you so much indeed for all your time. It's been a pleasure, Lee. Thank you for calling. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.